0: with me to genesis uh, chapter 11 verse 27 we'll be reading the end of genesis 11 and the first nine verses of genesis chapter 12 here's god's word now these are the generations of terah terah fathered abram nahor and haran and haran fathered lot haran died in the presence of his father terah in the land of his kindred At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Your uh, religious beliefs are okay. If you need them, just keep them to yourself. Or religion should be a personal, uh, private matter. Perhaps you've heard uh, these sentiments or uh, ones like them expressed before. Uh, In this view, the benefits of Christianity, for example, are found primarily uh, in what they mean to me or you as an individual. Christianity helps me to cope with uh, the difficulties of life. It maybe challenges me to be a better person. Uh, By practicing my faith, I can be authentic and live out my truth. Well, these statements and the views behind them raise an important question. What does Christianity offer to the world? Is there anything that Christianity can say uh, beyond just our personal, private conversation with Jesus? Well, if the pollsters are right, most of us sense that things are broken around us people are concerned about things like crime and corruption and cost of living Uh, individually we continue to see records record levels of anxiety and depression internationally we could just summarize and say things are a catastrophe so what's christianity's role in a world that's straining under its own brokenness is it merely a personal private comfort or is there something more Well, the Bible's own claim is that there is something more. For God has spoken, the Bible says. And he speaks not just to help the suffering person uh, cope on their own. He speaks to establish a lifeline by which he will mend a broken world. Now, certainly the Bible is a a message, has a message with personal implications. From cover to cover, there is a, a message of comfort and hope to the individual in the Bible. However, it would be a mistake to see the Bible as addressing merely our personal, private concerns. Well, in our text this morning, we see that God is speaking a message of global importance. In fact, the way the Bible speaks helps us personally, uh, the way the Bible helps us personally is through what God says to the world. God in the Bible sets forth a plan, not just to address my personal Uh, private problems, but the Bible speaks to our broken world to say that God has set forth an answer to the brokenness that is common to us all. So here's the message of Genesis 12. God's grace to a broken world comes through God's promises established with Abram, fulfilled in Christ and received by faith. Genesis 12 tells us that God doesn't simply speak in hushed tones to certain people in private, but his voice booms out to the world with an offer of divine blessing and grace. And we're going to see that this morning by looking together at uh, promises needed, promises made, promises embraced, and promises fulfilled. That's promises needed, promises made, promises embraced, and promises fulfilled. My son uh, Henry and I were out for uh, lunch this past week and we were discussing uh, important things uh, like if you could travel back in time to any period, what time period would you want to travel back to? I'm not sure I gave a particularly uh, good answer, but I can tell you that I would not have wanted to be alive in Abram's day. It was not a good time. Uh, Since Adam and Eve had rejected uh, God's rule in the the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3, uh, the world was now uh, subjected uh, to a state of brokenness and and misery. The narrative from Genesis 3 through to our story bears out this reality. We read about uh, Cain killing his brother uh, Abel. There's the hot-headed vengeance of Lamech. There's the corruption of man's heart and the violence uh, that exists in the days of the flood. The world in Abram's day was also living in the aftermath of one of the most significant events of cultural upheaval ever to take place, the Tower of Babel. God met man's attempt to scaffold his way up to heaven by scrambling their languages and scattering the people. So now there's disunity, there's confusion, there's disorder. But most significantly, the world is plunged in spiritual darkness and ignorance concerning the one true God. Yes, there are are true worshipers of God sprinkled in here and there. We read in the early pages of our Bible. But there is widespread spiritual ignorance and idolatry at work in the world. Most people were like Abram and his family. Abram and his family lived in what is modern-day Iraq in Ur. Elsewhere we're told that they served other gods. And this was Abram's life, tending flocks and worshiping false gods willfully living a lie, uh, not knowing the God whom he owed his very existence to. And as we come to our passage this morning, we need to understand that the human story at this point is dark. It's characterized by misery and moral chaos, cultural confusion, spiritual blindness. Yes, there's there's a few bright spots. There's glimmers of grace and God's faithfulness uh, at work, but they're sprinkled in sparingly. Abel, Enoch, Noah, there's blips, there are cracks of light in the darkness. Well, our passage marks an important shift in focus and mood in the Genesis account. Because against this bleak background, Genesis 12 is like someone turning on the lights in a dark room. The focus of Genesis here turns from world events, things like uh, Babel and and, uh, the nations, uh, and suddenly it turns to God's call to a particular family and a particular individual. Suddenly God speaks. Our text says, now the Lord said to Abram. Now if you've spent time in church, you're likely familiar with Abram or Abraham as he's later called, and so it might not surprise you that God would speak to Abraham. But before he was ever father Abraham with many sons, he was Abram the idolater. Now Abram was spending his days tending to his flocks, worshiping these other gods, as as I said. He was robbing God of the worship that was God's due, paying his homage to some man-made idols. He was ignorant of his ignorance concerning God. He couldn't see the truth he was suppressing. But one day, God speaks. He bursts in and he speaks to Abram. Out of all of the scattered families on the earth, God chooses to speak to this aging idolater. To break through Abram's ignorance, making himself known to Abram and giving Abram grace. And what happens here is really a pattern of the experience of of every Christian. We're alienated from God. Our hearts are are turned away from God. Maybe though we've been born in a Christian home, yet our hearts are still not naturally submissive to God. We esteem many things, any things, more than we do God. And this is how it is until God comes to us and he makes himself known. What we see in our story is that God doesn't just make himself known to Abram, God announces his intentions to bless Abram. And God's blessings to Abram come in the form of at least two promises. There's a promise to give Abram a people and a promise to give Abram a place, a land. So this is our second point, promises made. Now that these are the main promises that God makes to Abram at, at, at this point is demonstrated because there's a repeated pattern in our passage. Maybe, maybe you noticed it. We see it twice. First we're given a problem, then we're given God's promise, and then we're given Abram's response. So problem, promise, response. And the author of Genesis is, is uh, shining a spotlight on at least two problems in our passage so that we can see the splendor of God's promise that comes. And in this way we're supposed to see something about the way that God tends to work. We're meant to see that God uh, tends to work through bleak and dire circumstances. If we might say it this way, God is attracted to the places that are bleak and seemingly hopeless because he loves to punch through dead ends. Scripture is filled with examples of God doing uh, just that. Think of the captivity of Israel in Egypt and the Red Sea crossing or the giants in the land of Canaan or the Savior being born to a virgin. Think of the death of Christ and His resurrection. It's often the case that God works in the darkest moments and in the most unexpected places. These are the places that God delights to show up and to show His power. And that's what we see in our passage. And so let's look at each problem and promise in turn. The first problem we see is in Genesis eleven thirty. Abram's wife, Sarai, is unable to have children. Now our author puts it quite bluntly. He says, now Sarai was barren. She had no child. The force of this statement is like driving a car and then suddenly, without warning, while the car is still in motion, shifting from drive to park. Because all of the momentum in Genesis to this point has been on multiplication and expansion. God had said to Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. In Genesis 4, we read about the line of Cain and his offspring. Genesis 5, we read about the line of Abram and Seth, his son. We have family lines in Genesis 10, uh, the line of Noah, and again in, in Genesis 11. So we're reading Genesis and it's children, 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 suddenly no children. There's just for the first time introduced into the, the biblical record the problem of barrenness. Now this is a significant problem. It's a significant problem because of the heartache, of course, that this would have uh, caused Abram and Sarai. As those who, will, uh, who, who have endured it will attest to, infertility is a painful circumstance. But Sarai's barrenness is particularly significant because of the promise that God was about to make. God comes to Abram, and he tells him in verse 2, Go, leave your land, leave your father's household. I'm going to make you into a great nation, or great people. We've already heard that Sarai is barren. We'll learn a few verses later that Abram is advanced in years, most likely, when he receives this promise. So this is not the blessing that we would expect God to, to give to someone. Yet God promises to make Abram fruitful and and to multiply him. But here's the thing we need to see about this promise. The ultimate purpose of this promise was not more children. Uh, God didn't give Abram children because he felt sorry for him, or uh, he didn't give him children as an end in itself. God's words to Abram make that very clear. God promises Abram offspring because his purpose is to bless Abram. And he wants to bless Abram so that he would be a blessing. God will bless Abram. He will uh, make Abram a great nation. And the peoples of the earth shall be blessed in Abram. So this encounter between Abram and God is not just about God showing grace to one man, to someone uh, just personally that he's coming to. But God is showing grace to a broken world. Genesis 12, God is establishing a beachhead from which divine grace will make its advance. Now maybe an illustration will be helpful here. The Nile, River in Egypt, uh, uh, the Nile River in Egypt has remarkable power. The climate in Egypt is uh, very hot. Uh, the general conditions of the region would uh, make it very inhospitable to uh, growing crops or living there, except for the Nile. Flowing from the south, uh, the Nile cuts through the land of Egypt, uh, and it establishes an essential lifeline for the people. Nile regularly will will flood, and it provides fresh soil to farmers so they can grow their crops and irrigate the areas around the river. Uh, One uh, aerial shot that I looked at of the Nile this week uh, starkly illustrated the Nile's life-giving power. Because in the middle of this vast expanse of the yellow sands of desert, there it runs this ribbon of blue and green. The Nile River, and on either side of it is life, crops, trees. You can go on Google Maps uh, and look. It, it's really fascinating. Look at a satellite view of the Nile. Thousands upon thousands of square miles of lifeless desert. But in that desert... A river has been established that gives life to all that come into contact with it. That's why 95% of Egypt's 100 million people live along the banks of the Nile River. The Nile cuts through this barren terrain, and it's the source of life there. Well, this is sort of what God is doing in Genesis 12. God comes, and he attaches his promise to Abram's line. Sin has left our world uh, in a state of utter misery. We're confused, violent, spiritually darkened, alienated from God. And God, in a manner of speaking, uh, he, he's, uh, he's coming to this lifeless, spiritually lifeless, morally depraved, existential desert. And He's establishing a river of blessing. But God chooses Abram out of all the nations of the earth and He establishes Abram as the, the source or the headwaters He declares his intention to fix Abram's offspring as the channel through whom he would bring life and blessing out to the world. Before, in Genesis 3 to 11, God's blessings came as sort of uh, uh, spontaneous rain showers here and there. But now Abram shows up and God carves out a river that will wind through human history to bring his grace. Now, if you live in Egypt and you need to find water, you go to the Nile after Genesis 12, if you live in a broken world and you need to find grace, you go to the river of blessings in Abram's offspring. In Genesis 12, grace is given an address. God graciously comes and he says, here, now, this is the place to which you can come and you will find life and blessing. This is the first promise that God gives and it's the promise that God will overcome the problem of a lifeless womb to give life to the world. The second problem is found in verse 6. Abram and Sarai, along uh, with Abram's father and nephew, leave the land of Ur. Uh, They travel along the Euphrates River to Haran, and uh, there's a rich pasture land in in Haran, and there Abram and his people stay a while. Eventually, Abram's father dies, and uh, then the Lord tells Abram, okay, you've got to keep moving. And he leads them to Shechem in Canaan, right in the middle of modern-day Israel and verse 6 tells us at that time the Canaanites were in the land. Various Canaanite groups lived in the land at that time. Many uh, lived in strong, occupied, uh, uh, fortified cities. There were different kings of city-states muscling one another for power and control. Now you got to understand there there were relatively a big ill-tempered fish swimming in these waters and Abram was not one of those fish. And yet no sooner has the author drawn our attention uh, to the inhabitants of the land than he pans the camera over to Abram, and he he shows us an encounter between Abram and God. This time, though, God doesn't just speak, he, he appears visibly to Abram. And In the Bible, these appearances of God, sometimes we read about Uh, appearances of God, theophanies, uh, and and these are places where God visibly shows up, and he does that to underscore, to to punctuate a point that he intends to make, something he's going to do. And here, God appears to underscore an important promise. We see it in verse 7, God says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, it's a remarkable promise because on the one hand, again, it seems so uh, unlikely. Abram has newly migrated to this land. He's a wandering shepherd. His strength would uh, almost certainly pale in comparison to the, the rulers of the area around him. But it's even more remarkable because of what the promise of land would mean. This land promise dominates Old Testament thinking. One Bible scholar put it this way, one cannot exaggerate how important the image of land was to the Old Testament mind and heart. He goes on to say the promise of land is a virtual obsession for Abram and his descendants. It's the locus of longing. It's one of the chief objects of hope for believers in the Old Testament. This promise of land, the allure of the land, was about more than just getting a piece of of real estate embedded in this promise was the idea of being given a place to settle, of finding rest, of being home. And though the Canaanites occupied the land, God appears to Abram and he says, your offspring will possess this land. Well, how does Abram respond to these two mammoth promises? Well, this is our third point, a promise embraced. First, Abram responds by believing God. He trusts that God will do as he's promised. Abram responds in faith. Consider Abram's response to his first encounter with God. God tells Abram, uh, leave your house, your extended family, your friends, leave the gods of your father's household and go. He doesn't give Abram an address. He doesn't say plug this into Google Maps. He says, go to the land that I will show you. And he sends Abram, uh, without a map, but with a promise. I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And Abram's response is to believe God and his promise. You see this in verse 4, as, uh, or, uh, in verse 4 rather, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now it's important for us to see that Abram's faith is expressed uh, not as a vague intellectual uh, uh, acceptance of some interesting idea. Now too often that's how we think about faith. We think about faith as an idea that we can agree is, is true or likely true. But let me ask, what does it mean for you to have faith? Is this how you think about it? I think J.I. Packer has put it well when he says that faith is not merely a confident and optimistic mindset, nor is it just an agreement that maybe some doctrine is true or a confidence uh, in God without a commitment to God. Faith is knowing what God has promised. It's agreeing that those promises are true, and then it's personally relying upon those promises. So if you're a soldier Uh, faith is not merely knowing the battle plan. It's not merely agreeing to the battle plan. It's putting your life on the line because you trust the battle plan. You trust that your fellow soldiers, they're going to have your back, that reinforcements will arrive when they're supposed to, uh, that the intel that you've received is good. You might be a little anxious about the battle. You might have some reservations, but faith is, is exhibited as you commit yourself to the battle plan. Likewise, Abram's faith is displayed as he takes God at his word and he goes. He relies on on God to be true to his promises. Abram may have had all sorts of questions. We we can imagine some of them. God, where are you taking me? God, I'm already eligible for the senior's discount when we go out to eat. I mean, how is this children thing going to work? God, do we really have to move? Can't we just do it right here? And yet, even while he may have had these types of questions, Abram's response to God's promise is one of trust. He says to this God uh, to whom only recently he's been introduced, he says, okay, I'll go. And Abram responds to God's promises by believing them, by trusting them. Secondly, after God promises to give Abram's offspring a land, Abram responds a second way. He responds with worship. Worship here is the response of faith. For Abram, worship is the response from a heart uh, uh, that is Uh, toward God that believes that God will do what he said, what he's promised. While Abram's response to the promise of being made a people is to go, his promise to being given a land in verses 7 and 8 is to build. He builds altars to the Lord. Altars were the symbol of religious worship and commitment in the Old Testament. And it was on the the altar that the the worshiper would offer themselves to God. They were publicly uh, affiliating themselves with this God. So surrounded by these idolatrous pagan Canaanites in verse 8, Abram establishes a place of worship to the Lord and he calls upon the Lord in prayer. He openly publicly commits himself to this God who has given him promises that are amazing and that he is taken by faith. So what does this have to do with us? Well, the first thing that we need to see is how God's promises to Abram are realized. And in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul explains our text for us. It's really handy when the New Testament very clearly does that. And Paul tells us that the promises of a people and and the promises of a place in Genesis 12 are fulfilled in Abram's offspring, singular. Paul says they're fulfilled in one person in particular, Jesus Christ. It's Galatians 3.16. Jesus not only descended from Abram according to the flesh, but he walked his faith, walked by faith as Abram did. And so if we're to return to the image of a river, we need to see that God's uh, his river of, of blessing in human history winds from Abram to Christ. But not just to Christ, through Christ. Again, leaning on Genesis 12, Paul writes, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, this is very interesting. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abram, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So Paul says the good news concerning Jesus was preached in God's promise to Abram. This is so important. It, it's not that the Old Testament teaches us uh, one thing, but the New Testament teaches us something different. Paul says that the gospel that he preaches, the gospel of Jesus that he proclaims, is a thread that runs from the Old Testament into the New. And the gospel is found in Genesis 12, 3, in seed form, in the promise of the salvation blessings that would be offered to the world through Abram and his line, through Jesus. How so? Well, Paul goes on in Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. He he redeemed us from the curse that our sin deserves through his death on the cross. Why? So that in Christ, the blessing of Abram might come to the Gentiles. So the promised blessing, says Paul, is that we might be declared righteous in God's sight. We might be restored to life-giving fellowship with God and to receive His, His promised Spirit. Now you think of these blessings as God uh, determining to heal that which has been broken and lost when sin entered the world. What the promise of place and a promise of, of people pointed to was an undoing of the effects of sin. Through Christ's death and resurrection then, sinners who have been evicted from God's life-giving presence are now declared righteous. He makes us suited for his presence. He comes to us again by his spirit to give us everlasting life when we were under a sentence of death. He secures for us not not a strip of land, but a place in the new heavens and the new earth. Ethnic Israel and the strip of land along the Mediterranean, they're just visible placeholders that pointed us to even bigger and better promises. And now, in the crucified offspring of Abram, these promises are refracted out to the world. Like the delta of a river, that grace is is the grace that's found in Abram's offspring now goes out, it's flowing to people all around the world. God's grace flows out from Christ as as he offers himself to a world that's still broken by sin. Christ flows out to the world now by his spirit to bring life where there's only death. So that around us in the world, there's little communities that are are popping up, being given real, everlasting life and peace in Jesus. Now here's the thing. Like with the Nile, whether you benefit from the life-giving channel of of uh uh, of life or the source of life is determined by where you stand in relation to it doesn't matter uh, where you live now or where you want to be life is not found where you want it life is found within the banks of that river to benefit from it you need to have access to it and so it is with god's grace to a broken world paul says that the way that we have access to the blessings of, of abraham is through faith and through faith alone It's those who are of faith who are are sons of Abraham. It's those who are united to Christ through faith that are Abraham's offspring and who receive the promised blessing of God. So God's grace to a broken world comes through the promises established with Abraham, fulfilled in Christ, and now received by faith. Which leads us to a question. Knowing that God has established a river of blessing in a world made miserable by sin, how should we respond Like Abraham, we're called to believe God, not just believe in God or to believe something about God, but to hear God's promises and to rely upon God's promises. For us, this means believing in the one in whom the promised blessings of Abram are found. Faith is, is exhibited as we come to the place where God has said his blessings would flow, as we come to Christ. In Christ, the promises of God to us through Abraham are of a people that we belong with. We're part of a family now. He promises us a a place that we'll belong in. We'll receive a home. And it's a promise of a God whom we'll belong to. We shall be reconciled to him. These promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And he and all the blessings found in him are offered to you this morning. He's offered to you if you are a far-off idolater as Abram was. He's offered to you if you've never yet come to drink of his life-giving power. And if you've believed God and his promises before, he's offered to you again. If you lived in Egypt, you would never decide to move away from the banks of the Nile, to move out to the desert. It'd be foolish to say, I'm set. Uh, I was at the Nile in 04. I'm good now. No one would say that. Why? Because your very being depends on that source of life. And dear Christian, so it is with you. The promises of God in Jesus Christ, winding their way through human history, are the river of divine grace and blessing. Your life is found in Him, in His promises, and He's offered to you again this morning, so that you can drink again and again and again of His grace. But Abram gives us also a second promise. It's the second response, rather. It's the response that flows out of faith, believing God and His promise. We worship. Like Abraham, believing God to be dependent upon, we marvel. In the midst of of the world, we express our love-filled devotion to this gracious God. Holding on to his promise, we call on him in prayer. Just think about it. Abram's response was to worship when all he had was a promise. And we have so much more. We've got the first installment of the fulfillment of these promises in Christ. All around the world today, there are millions of people who are sons and daughters of Abram through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian today, you're only a Christian because God's promise of blessing, his river of of blessing and life uh, has flown to you. you, that you have been blessed in Abram and in Abram's line. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he secured for us a place, a home, in the new heavens and the new earth. A place of security and peace and rest, a land of blessing, where everything broken is finally mended. God has not only made promises, but he is keeping them in Christ Jesus. And in Jesus Christ, God's grace and his blessing have not only flowed down to me and to you, but they've gone out to the world. A message that there is a place and there is now a person where grace and divine blessing may be found in a broken world if you would only receive it by faith. So let's pray for that now and let's continue celebrating those promises. Amen. Father in heaven, as we come to you, we thank you for your precious uh, promises of grace to us. And we thank you for the gospel which we see. Uh, coming to Abram, a promise that in Abram's offspring, you would bring blessing and grace to a world mired in sin and misery, but we pray that you would give us faith to believe your promises that we might also receive and be heirs of your blessing, and we pray, Lord, that we might share and speak of that blessing with those around us, saying that in a world that experiences much brokenness and pain, there is a place where grace and healing may be found. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You please uh, stand with me as we uh, sing together our song of response, celebrating the grace of God together.